Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word, I pray that we'd have insight to truly connect the dots. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would make things clear to us. And Lord, I pray that you would, by your grace, grow our affections for you. And I pray, Lord, that if need be, you'd change our affections away from the things of this world and to the things that you've called us to. And and we recognize, Lord, even as we open, that we need your grace in order to make the turns that we need to make. I pray we'd learn from King Jeroboam that, Lord, we would not follow his example, but we would learn from the tragic steps that, that were involved in his life. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you got your Bible this morning, if you'd open up to 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13, we're really tracing the storyline of the kingdom as it goes from a unified kingdom to one in which the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, is very unwise, and as a result of not only the prophecy that was given to Solomon, it's lived out in real time as we see the Word of God, how it always works. It, it, it fulfills what is promised. Uh, our life circumstances reveal the truth of that Word. And, and so we see a man that is unwise. We see a man that doesn't seek the counsel of God. And as a result, we've got a split in the kingdom. And, and around 931, this united monarchy that began under the king, king Saul, and then it went to David, and then it went to David's son Solomon, is now split. It's split where Jeroboam goes to the north, and he takes ten tribes. He's in the north, Rehoboam's in the south. And, and we really began to look at the tragic life of Jeroboam. So much in First Kings is written about him, a huge section It's clear that God intends for not only the nation of Israel to learn from the error of his ways, but he intends for us to learn. And we remember the words of Romans 15, verse 4, that these things are written for our instruction. And so today as we look at them, we we have so much to learn from the life and and the tragedy of Jeroboam. And we started last time, and it's really like, okay, we can go through the storyline and we can notif- notify, you know, notice the scenes or the acts that are taking place within the narrative. But what are the responses that are implied and that are seen? Why, why is God intending to bring this to our attention? We can learn from the error of Jeroboam's ways. And, and really, we've looked at four, we're looking at four responses to the life of Jeroboam. Four responses. And the first one we examined last week is we examine the pride of Jeroboam and we see the call to humility. The call to humility that we gain by looking at Jeroboam. In chapter 12, we began to see the error of this guy's ways and we saw so many different things. We saw his worry over trust. It was a form of pride. God had given him everything he needed to know about what was going to happen with his kingdom if he followed the ways of God. But he worried. He analyzed it, and it was, became a form of insecurity. And what he did was he chased after idols. 
So one form of his pride was exhibited or demonstrated, manifested in his worry over trust. Another aspect of this is the way in which he sought ungodly counsel. God had spoken. God had been clear. There was no need to go through some great process of delay. God had revealed clearly what he was to do, and his delay and his seeking the counsel of men was another form of pride. We saw the way in which he sought after his own kingdom versus the kingdom of God. He, he wasn't excited about the people potentially still going to Jerusalem, even though the kingdom was split. He saw that as a threat to his own kingdom. And we saw that pride can, can really be a strange thing. It, it, often the way we are quick to identify pride, we are also quick to not see the subtleties of pride. Sometimes it's easy, and like, like I, I don't know about you, but uh, I don't think this is a positive thing because a lot of times in my life it's been a fleshly reaction, but I feel like I'm pretty good at noticing other people's pride. But I'm often very quick to see the subtleties of how pride has affected my own heart. And Jeroboam is a man that is pursuing his own kingdom, and yet he's still a spiritual man. Wow, what a commendable person that he still cares about offerings to God. But what we saw in that fourth characteristic of his pride was that he, in a, in a, in a perverted, distorted manner, it was as if he thought he could recreate God in his own image and make God into what he wanted God to be to fit his life. I tell you, it gets scary because... Uh, when we live life in a way that is not consistent with how God has revealed himself and how he's called us to follow him, the only opportunity we have to continue in this form of religion is to try to justify our lives and make God comfortable with it. But the problem is, when he put the golden calves up at Dan, you know, it tells us right out of the gate that, that here's a man, Jeroboam, he comes, he, he, he's coming, you know, out of Egypt back in, and, and we see these like similarities to Moses. Jeroboam's going to follow in Moses' steps, but all of a sudden, unlike Moses, he becomes just like Aaron, and he presents the golden calves to the people, and now he's making priests out of anybody that wants to be a priest. God, God was so clear. The only priests were to be Levites, and now he basically is like, hey, you want to be a priest? Come on, we need you. It is an absurd it is a distortion, and it is a mark of what happens when we forsake God's word and continue in our spirituality. It will always become idolatrous. It can be idolatrous even as we are active in our worship, and we know nothing of what worship is. It's a warning to us. Thanks be to God in Jesus Christ that because Christ Jesus came to die on a cross for our sins, and through the new covenant he brings, he reveals the idolatry in all of us. He shows us a better way, and by grace through faith, he brings about a transformation within our life, enabling us to walk in true worship. I pray we'd see that. I pray we wouldn't just say, what, what are you doing? And I pray that we could look at Jeroboam and see the Jeroboam in all of our lives, but see the extravagant grace of God, 
the grace that turns us. But this morning, we're going to look at three more responses to the storyline. We're going to start in chapter 13. And the, the next response, and, and I was listening to a faithful preacher yesterday uh, on my way back from uh, being at the cross-country meet in uh, Georgia, and, and I'd already formed my outline. And, and as he was talking, he, he said things different than, than I'm framing it. But, so there's other ways we could go about this, obviously. But I do believe that this is a, in line with the intent and also in line with what we learn. The second response, I believe here, is a call to obedience. We look at Jeroboam's life, and I pray that from the teenagers, from the younger kids to the oldest in the room, I pray we go, oh God, would you create in me a heart of humility? May I not follow the path of Jeroboam and have this pride and arrogance that manifest in my heart. God, would you make in me a humble heart? Would you give me a humility before your word, a humility before your voice, a humility to follow you in obedience? But now I pray we would look at chapter 13 and we would say, oh God, would you give me an obedient heart? Now let's look at chapter 13. It's a fascinating, fascinating story that took place in the life of Israel. And, and you need to understand as we get started that there's going to be the primary characters in chapter 13 are going to be this man of God that comes from Judah. A man of God that comes from Judah. And there's also going to be King Jeroboam. He's a central part of this story. This is describing his life. So you need to understand you've got, if, if the three actors came up on the stage, you would see the man of God from Judah, you would see King Jeroboam, and you would see an old prophet from Bethel. Those three people are critical to understand the twist and the turns of the story. In chapter 13, let's read a little bit here. We're not going to read every verse in chapter 13 and in chapter 14 this morning. We're going to read several. In chapter 13, and behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. Wow, he's standing by the altar to make his offerings. And it's interesting because even here, you see this sick type of attitude of Jeroboam. It's almost like he's wanting to be similar to Solomon in Jerusalem a few chapters ago. Remember, he went and there he was by, I mean, everything is similar but so distorted. And so here he is, Jeroboam is standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priest of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. I tell you, one of the, uh, I pray that one of the, the ways we would learn in the book of Kings is when God declares something that is going to happen, it happens. And if you're, if you're with me today or with us today and, and you're contemplating, or maybe, and, and I say this not to come at you, 
in a fleshly, harsh way, but I say it to you to warn you. If you're listening to this with an attitude almost of indifference, I want to warn you right off the bat of what God promises will take place to those who rebel against him. Because, you know, here there's a warning. You're going to see a warning in a moment that comes from the prophet. The old prophet from Bethel is going to warn the man of God. Because the man of God does something in the second half of this story that displays disobedience. But have you noticed there's so many forecasts of what is to come? And there's a forecast in Isaiah, in the very last chapter of Isaiah. And in the very last chapter, in the very last verse, it says, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me for their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Dear friend, by the grace of God, God's word reveals to you today a coming judgment to those who rebel against God and are indifferent to his holiness and indifference to his commands. And he wants us to understand, just like the promise of judgment was coming on Jeroboam that we'll see in this chapter, there is a promise to every man, woman, boy, and girl that if you do not submit your ways to the ways of God, you will deal with a fire that will never be quenched eternally. And the word of God, comes true. We're going to see today that at the moment that Jeroboam least expected it, everything turned in his life to judgment. This is a sobering text, a sobering text of a man that God laid out a path of how he was to follow him, and the man was indifferent, arrogant, calloused, complacent, apathetic, rebellious, and turned his own way. And we see in 1 Kings 13, as we get started, a reminder of these warnings. The word of the Lord is sure. The word of the Lord is sure. You can bank your hopes. You can bank your promises on what God has said. And Jeroboam sadly did not. But what do we see? Behold, a son shall be born of the house of David. There's a prophecy that Josiah would come. This is similar to the prophecy in Isaiah of Cyrus that's going to be raised up by God. Unbelievable. I mean, it, this is way many, many years before. And what does he say is going to happen? That Josiah is going to sacrifice on the altar the priest of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God 
entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. Now, what is going on here? Unbelievable. Jeroboam has this man appear out of Judah. God's called this man of God. The man of God, he, he revealed to Jeroboam the tragic reality of what was going to take place under King Josiah at those altars. That the priests who had been playing around in idolatrous ways were going to be judged. That the ashes of the altar. But what he does is, Jeroboam hears this, and rather than it humble him and him call out in repentance to God, he says, seize the man of God. He points his finger at the man, and his, his, his hand is it's literally like he can't draw it back to himself. It's like frozen. And here, a remarkable turn. You see the altar torn down. The ashes poured out. All of this is taking place. And, and, and yet in all of this judgment and all of this sign that God is demonstrating, not only to Jeroboam, but to the nation, now in an amazing turn, the king looks to the man of God and he's like, hey, uh, by the way, would you pray for me that my hand would get better again? I mean, you think, think about it. It's really interesting. It, it, he doesn't, I find it fascinating that he doesn't pray for a restored heart. He prays for a restored hand. It's interesting because you remember the paralytic man when we were studying the gospel of Mark? And uh, his friends are bringing him in, and Jesus looks at the paralytic man and says, your sins are forgiven you. And we were thinking about how many have commented over the years since that story took place, where it might have been tempting for the friends and the man on the mat to be like, but what about my paralysis? I appreciate the forgiveness. And Jesus reveals to him in that moment, his greater need was not his physical need, it was his spiritual need. And so many times in our life, we can't see the greater need. We see the physical, the physical, oh God, get, please get this, this ailment off of me. God, please bring me prosperity. God, please do this in my life. But so often, isn't it sad that we do not have wisdom and discernment to see what our greater need really is? You would think at this point, this man would go, oh my, in light of what God has done, in light of how Ahijah revealed it to me, what am I doing? How can I go against the ways of God? Oh dear God, please restore my heart. And yet in that moment, He's thinking, you know what? I do not want this to stay this way. Would you please entreat the favor of who's God? Who does he say in the text? Your God. It's telling how he uses the pronouns here. It's almost like you can mask it, but in a moment of reality, you can't deny it. This is not his God. It's, it's the God of the man of God. I mean, and, and what happens now is 
all of this takes place, and then you get down to verse 7, and now you have another strange twist. The king said to the man of God, come home with me, refresh yourself, I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, if you give me half your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so was it commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. It appears that what's happening here is that the man of God, and and many, many scholars think that Jeroboam was like, would you come to my house because maybe I can pay you off, maybe I can bribe you, maybe I can do something that you might say something favorable about my kingship. And so, so God had given the man of God clear instruction that he was not to eat bread, drink water. He was to do what? He was to get there, do what he was supposed to do, and he was to return on a route that he did not come on. So the road that he came to Bethel wasn't to be the road that he returned on. He was to be there, be faithful, and leave. So at this point, you say, wow, look at the example of the obedience of the man of God. He denied Jeroboam's request. He leaves. Verse 11, things change again. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. It appears from verse 11 that his sons were participating in this whole religious cult that Jeroboam had established in Bethel and at Dan. So something already is off. Why was the old prophet's sons at this place that clearly defied the word of God? They also told of their father the words that he had spoken to the king. He had spoken amazing words about the judgment of the priest of the high places and how human bones would be burned on the altar. Can you imagine as they told him about the sign that was demonstrated right there that the altar was torn down, that Jeroboam's hand froze up, that the ashes poured out from the altar, and then that Jeroboam, in a panic, he pleaded with the man of God to pray for healing for his hand, and, and there it was healed. Can you imagine this old prophet's mind as he heard about what took place at Bethel? And what did he say in response? He says in verse 12, And their father said to them, Which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. They saddled the donkey for him and he mounted it. Verse 14, and he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? He said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. He had clear instructions on this. God said not to do that. He's obedient in verses 1 through 10, but what happens here in verse 16? Seems to be a good sign. And he said, I may not return with you or going with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me, By the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water, but he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Wow. It reminds you, I was listening to uh, a preacher, and I hadn't even considered this. But you remember when, when Paul was 
talking in Galatians chapter 1, and he says, if we or an angel speak to you a different gospel, he gave him a warning against that. And, 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 the, and it was Sinclair Ferguson, and, 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 and Pastor Ferguson said, um, maybe Paul was alluding to this story even in Galatians 1.8. Interesting thought. We can't prove it, but it's fascinating. But here, God had spoken. God's not going to contradict himself. That's one good interpretive tool when you're studying the Bible. God doesn't contradict himself. And so if you ever come up with a conclusion in your life that's contrary to what God reveals in Scripture, you know it's the wrong way to go. Just like the man of God. The man of God um, had a duty, had a, a purpose to fulfill what God had called him to do. And now what happens? There's great consequences here. This is serious. He's done exactly what God told him not to do. And now he's gone to the man's house. He went in and eats bread in his house and drank water. And then in verse 20, really something strange happens. This, this deceptive, lying, old prophet from Bethel does what? He now receives the words from God as, and acts as a prophet in, in a true sense. And what does he tell him? They're sitting there at the table in verse 21, and he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, thus says the Lord, because you've disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread, drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. Wow. Judgment came on this guy, disobedience of what had taken place. And, and, and can you imagine how sobering it was there? Because like verse 23, it shows that they finished it up. In 23, and after he had eaten bread and drunk, he sat up the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road, and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. Can you imagine how strange this was? Now the man is dead, and now when people go by, they see a lion there standing next to this man and a donkey. The lion's not going after the donkey. The lion's not eating the man. How bizarre. But God clearly was doing something incredibly unique to show his power over creation and to show the nation and to show King Jeroboam the seriousness of what's going on. I was looking at this, and what's amazing is you get into verse 11 through 19, you see them tell their dad, they saddle the, the donkey, they find him, he lies to him, and now you, you get into this last section here, and now once the man is dead, the, the, the old prophet hears about it. They tell, they tell their dad what's going on. So verse 26, and when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. He then announces that he, want, he gets the body. He lays the body of the man of God in his own grave. 
And after he had buried him, he said to his own sons in verse 30, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. It's interesting, one thought here to consider is he's so nervous about this because of the prophecy that the man of God gave earlier that the old man from Bethel actually knew would be fulfilled. And is he worried that his bones are going to be burned on the altar, potentially, in a similar way to the priest? And is he now thinking, well, wait a minute, if I take this man of God and take his body into my grave, then when I die, I'll be placed beside him, and maybe it will preserve my bones. Interesting. We don't know. But what do we learn here? This is a very strange story. When we look at this, we see a call to obedience. God does not take breaking his commands lightly. And God holds his prophets. God holds his people. God holds his man accountable, just like Jeroboam. I tell you, do you think that we ever get so accustomed to the grace of God that we lose sight of the holiness of God? You know, Paul dealt with that in Romans 6 when the people misunderstood the grace of God. They said, shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? God's grace is so wonderful. Let's just live our life however we want. This is amazing. And Paul says, may it never be. I tell you, people often say, Their hope when they stand before a holy God one day will be that God knows their hearts. Folks, that does not work when we look at 1 Kings 13. God is holy, and God does not look upon sin. And God takes obedience and disobedience seriously. We need to understand this because here we're looking at this and God is clearly calling Jeroboam to obedience even as he's calling the nation to obedience. But there's something happening here. We see in 1 Kings 13 the importance of obeying the word of God. It's important. Don't get into a mindset where you become apathetic to where it's not a big deal to be disobedient to the things of God. Several truths hit me in in looking at this. You know, some of these were, I thought about James, where James shows us the seriousness of breaking the law of God. For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. We could look at a lot of passages that would illustrate the consequences of disobedience, but I want you to think of something here. God has worked. In, in the book of 1 Kings, we're seeing that we go all the way back. We see the sin of King Saul. We go all the way back. We're all familiar with the sin of King David, right? We're familiar with the sin of King Solomon. Now we're familiar with the sin of King Rehoboam. Now we're familiar with the sin of King Jeroboam. And doesn't it make this passage stand out even more in Romans 5.19? For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. 
Praise be to God in Jesus Christ. I hope you see that today, if you're seeking to please God just through your own life and through your own spirituality, and you really don't see Christ as necessary, understand, you will face judgment for breaking the holy standard of God. The wages of sin is death. You will face it with the greatest fierceness of the holy wrath of God. But understand something here, friend. The good news of the gospel and why I can stand before you today is that through Jesus' obedience, those that trust in him are made righteous. Through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It says in Philippians, speaking about Christ and his coming, it says that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so now for the Christian, obedience takes on a whole other dimension. We never do what we do to earn God's favor because no one's saved by works lest we would boast, right? As Ephesians 2 alludes to. But, but now, through the righteousness of Jesus and the fact that we need a greater king, and while King Solomon, King Rehoboam, King Jeroboam are blowing it, blowing it, blowing it, and we see consequences even of this man of God, we're reminded, looking through the lens of the New Testament, back to the Old Testament, that we need a greater king, one who is perfectly obedient, one who is perfectly righteous. We cannot measure up, but he measured up for us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And now because of the gospel, I pray that excites you this morning. That's good news, friend. That is good news. The good news of the grace of God that we could be made right with a holy God through the obedience of the perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now Peter says to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Here's what's amazing, is that we have no hope and no ability to obey the things of God apart from a work of grace in our life that's enabled by the Holy Spirit of God. And friend, it changes everything because the righteous king, the Lord Jesus Christ, works in our life and now gives us a capacity and an ability in his grace to walk obediently. And now it changes the way we look at obedience. Jesus said in John 15, but all these things they will do, um, that's not the passage I wanted. Um, <laughs> it's a great passage. It's just I wrote down the wrong one. The, uh, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what I say. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Uh, we learn so much from the disobedience of this man of God. God takes this seriously. God looks at this in a serious, serious way, but I pray you'd see the gospel here, and I pray that you'd be excited. Do you realize there's going to be a day for those who trust in Jesus Christ for those who look to him, there's going to be a day of righteousness and there's going to be a day where there will be, there will be obedience of the people. Obedience. Daniel 7.27 speaks of that day in the future where we will be obedient. Why? Because of the victory that Christ has won. 
and the work that he's accomplished for us. But you know, we not only see this call to obedience today, we learn that looking at this man of God, we learn that it's significant. It's like, it's almost as if God said, Jeroboam, understand how seriously I take this. And if you don't understand, look even at the man of God and how I hold him to obedience. I'm holding you to obedience. But we see not only this, this call to obedience, but we see a call to repentance. And that's where I'm going to leave you with today. A call to repentance. What's shocking in this passage that's so heartbreaking? Look at verse 33 and 34. It's really the most important verses in the chapter. What is the response of Jeroboam to all of what God had done? In verse 33, after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way but made priests for the high places, again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priest of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Think with me what had happened God brought the man of God. That was an act of kindness, friend. The prophet that comes from Judah is an act of kindness and grace of God to come into Jeroboam. His declaration of Josiah was an act of grace to be revealed to Jeroboam, that Jeroboam could understand the serious weight of what is taking place at these high places. His remarkable sign of the altar being torn down and the ashes poured out that God performed through this man of God is a remarkable sign of God's grace to Jeroboam. His hand being healed by the man of God because of the power of God working through this vessel is a remarkable sign of God's grace. And then you look at verse 33, and you don't to this point know, but after this thing, what thing? The story of the man of God. Everyone in the land had heard about it. After this thing, Jeroboam came face to face with a story that revealed that when people disregard obedience to the things of God, they will suffer consequence. And now his response doesn't turn him towards God. His hardening of his heart keeps him down a road that he's already walking down. I was reminded of this, but do you realize that sometimes the greatest judgment God can bring are when people are left with their own pursuits? Some people say things like, well, those people aren't being judged because they're doing exactly what they want to do. It might be the greatest example of the judgment of God on them. You go to a place where you go so far that you don't even realize it. You've you've passed the point of no return. Jeroboam's gone to that point. He doesn't care. It's interesting because not only do you see all these other signs, there, there's, I learned this in studying and, 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 and listening. It's interesting. There's the word for return, return, the, the word for turn back, did not turn from his evil way. If you, if you trace that word in the Hebrew in this chapter, 
It's used 16 different times. It's used different ways, but it's used 16 different times. Like, uh, for instance, uh, verse 4, it's used for the word draw it back to himself. Verse 6, the word restored. Verse 9, return. Verse 10, return. Verse 16, return. Verse 17, return. Verse 18, back. I say that to you because people would have heard this loud, orally. And, and the word, it's, it's like if you listen to this chapter in the Hebrew as it would have been understood, they literally would hear the emphasis of return, 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 return 16 times. The way the sounds work within this chapter are remarkable, pointing to the emphasis on returning. And what does Jeroboam do? He doesn't return. Isn't it interesting that he's compared to David? And, and, it, and it's the call to say, because you have gone your wicked way and not been like my servant David. And oftentimes, what do we do when we hear that? We think to ourselves, man, that's interesting because David really blew it. How is David getting any sense of commendation or used as an example in the text? Well, we see the sin of all these people. It wasn't the fact of David's sin. It was the example of David's repentance. You familiar with Psalm 51? The passage that illustrates the repentance of David after his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. And what do you see in the storyline when God used Nathan to call David out what took place? God worked through the prophet and God worked to bring about humility in David and God brought him to a place of turning. But what do you see with Jeroboam? You see a lack of repentance. You see a hardening. And, and so when we look at this passage, we see not only this call to humility, this call to obedience. Don't play around with the things of God. Obey him. And as a Christian, we don't do what we do to earn God's favor. We do what we do because of it. It's a, it's a love response to God. It's out of gratitude. But here we can't escape this passage without seeing the necessity of the call to repentance, the call to turn, the call to look to God. We're going to see next time more clearly in chapter 14. We're going to see a call to urgency. And friend, what we have to come face to face with here is that Jeroboam was apathetic and was complacent and disobedient, and he had no urgency at all. But God's grace was calling him to repentance. Even in Romans 2, did you not know, is the kindness of God leading you to repentance? The kindness of God. The kindness of God is being demonstrated in the life of Jeroboam, but he's not repenting. The question I pray we would all consider this morning are we walking in unrepentant patterns in our life? Are we neglecting the call of repentance? You know, when we look at the scripture, we see that the Christian life, it really is one of repentance. It marked the message and the ministry of Jesus. In Mark 1.15, Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of God and says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent 
and believe in the gospel. And the word repent there is literally as if Jesus is saying, repent and keep on repenting. Repent and keep on repenting. Keep on turning to me. Keep on turning back to me. Keep on walking this route. When we look at the story of Jeroboam, I pray we'd be reminded of the serious nature of repent, repentance. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back. It's as if one person's walking this way. To repent is to turn away from the direction they're going. And in the scripture, repentance is always coupled with faith. You turn away from the sin and the direction you're going and you look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith become a vital part of what it means to be converted, what it means to be a Christian. It's a work of the Holy Spirit that he does when he takes someone who's dead and he brings them to life. What happens is he remarkably infuses within them the ability by the Spirit to turn away and turn to. Repentance. Repentance. In 1 Thessalonians it says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. My encouragement to you this morning, friend, is may we pray as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. May we pray, oh God, would you give me a sensitive heart to learn from King Jeroboam? Oh God, may, may I not trivialize the call to be obedient to you, not as a motivation to somehow earn my salvation. That would be distorted and wrong. But may I see the serious call of, of, to your people out of response of what you have done for them. May we learn from Jeroboam the disastrous consequences of disobedience in our lives. May we learn from Jeroboam the disastrous consequences of hardened, impenitent hearts where we will not return. I pray we would, uh, we would be softened to God. I, I heard a story, and, and we're going to go into the Lord's Supper. I heard a story a long time ago that, that really blessed me. It was a story about uh, the preaching ministry. It was in a book that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote called, I think it was Preachers and Preaching or it was about preaching, and um, the famous uh, preacher from London, and, he, and, and in that story, it was mentioned that there was a man in, in D. Martin Lloyd-Jones' church who was a guy that everybody would consider a really faithful guy, you know, a man that the kids would see at church and helping out people, and, you know, a teenager would look up to, and the man fell into adultery. And the man cheated on his wife, and he, he lost everything. And the man was, was alone, and the man no longer had his kids or his wife. And as so often happens, the woman he pursued, he recognized the deceptiveness and the danger of what she was up to. Now he had nothing. And the man literally went to a bridge there in London, and he was about to jump off the bridge. And as he was getting ready to jump off the bridge, he, he heard the... He heard the big the clock, and he heard the, the times chime away, and he knew all of a sudden, wait a minute. He thought to himself, it's 6 p.m., and D. Martin Lloyd-Jones is about to preach the evening service on Sunday night. He said, maybe before I jump to my death, 
I'll one more time return to the church I attended all these years. And the man walked away from the bridge, and the man walked down the streets, and he walked in, and rather than be noticed, he went up to the balcony of Lloyd-Jones Church. And as the man walked into the balcony, and as he was up there, immediately he listened, and Jones was speaking about the call to turn to Christ and the call to follow his word and the call to yield yourself to Jesus. And immediately the man recounted that he was immediately changed. And the man repented. And the man turned. And the man confessed. And the book went on to say that that night at 6 p.m. in that chapel, that man went through confession and repentance, was restored to his Lord. And it went on to say that down the road, as a demonstration of the grace of God, that man was not only restored to his family, but the man was brought back to a place of respect within that local congregation. That's the goodness of God. And friend, you may be here today and if you are and you're playing around with the deception of sin, you got a mask on where there, there's a, the reality has nothing to do with the reality of the gospel. Friend, I call you today to understand the goodness and the kindness of God that you see exhibited to Jeroboam. I plead with you today, friend. Return, repent, turn away from your sin and look to the goodness and the kindness and the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him for your salvation. But you may be here today as a Christian and as a Christian, you've fallen deceived in the patterns of disobedience in your life. And friend, today I pray that just like this man in D. Martin Lloyd-Jones' congregation, today you'd be overwhelmed that the kindness of God and the mercy of God is even being demonstrated in the life of Jeroboam and his deep rebellion. But unlike Jeroboam's hardened, impenitent heart, I pray today you would bow yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ and thank him for his kindness and his mercy and turn from your sin this morning, confess it before a holy God and look to Jesus Christ and walk in the light of his word. That's the good news of the grace that's found in Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to do something. We're getting ready to go to the Lord's table and you're going to be walking to these tables and the back of each side. And I want to challenge you with something. Christian, this meal is for Christians. It's, it's not, it, it, it's a meal for the people of God. It's the meal for the people that have been called into Christ Jesus, a new community. If you're not a Christian this morning, we're so glad you're here but I'd ask that you not take of this meal. It's not for you, but it's designed for you to see a picture of the good news of this grace. Because, friend, everyone's invited. Everyone's invited to be in this family. And this family has one thing in common. It's a group of people that have seen their inability have seen the dirtiness of their own hearts, but have been moved by the grace of God to see the kindness and the beauty and the power of our Lord Jesus. And the only way 
that we have forgiveness. And the only way that we can walk in new life is because of his great kindness and love that he has shown us. So today, friend, watch this supper. But if you're here as a Christian today and you're noticing immediately the Spirit is calling you to repent of something specific in your life, I want to ask you a question. If you're unwilling and you're marginal with what God is speaking to your heart, do not take this meal. This is a time of great reflection. Paul says at Corinth, there were people that had actually died taking the Lord's Supper because of their flippant attitude towards the serious nature of it. So today, let this be a time of reflection and joy as we look to the cross of Christ. But let this be an opportunity, friend, to pray that by God's grace, we learn from Jeroboam that we'd have humble, obedient, repentant hearts. But let us praise Jesus because it's through the blood that Christ shed that inaugurated this thing we call the new covenant. And the new covenant means that those who are incapable are now enabled to follow Christ. Those who are disobedient are now enabled to be obedient. Those who are unable are now enabled through the life-giving work and death of Christ. So I'm going to pray, and then you're going to have the opportunity. And again, I, would you do me a favor? I know it's, it's, it's a beautiful picture of fellowship to talk to each other while we move around the room, but can we try to keep it quiet just so we can have a time of reflection because so much of this right now is an attitude of prayer. So if you would, just keep talking down very minimally. Obviously, you got to talk to your kids and do things, but, but like, let's keep it reverent as we go about this, and, and let's take it time to reflect. Lord, I thank you for, for, for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for our guests. I thank you for those that are here today that may never have trusted in the gospel. And Lord, I pray that right now, as we take this meal, I pray, oh Lord, we would see from Jeroboam a beautiful picture of our need of the gospel and a beautiful picture of your call to us as your people to follow after you in your grace, in your word, by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You could go to